MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say of Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Welcome to episode 53 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. And Allison, this is podcast number one in our year two. (laughs) (laughs) It is Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. And as I said, we're just over a year into the investigations. I am Andy McCabe. And I'm Allison Gill. We have some important rulings on total presidential monarchy. That's right. To discuss today, as well as a denial of Trump's motion to subpoena the missing January 6th committee materials, where Judge Chuck can <laughs> said nothing's missing. The missing, not missing committee <laughs> materials. And uh, Donald Trump's D.C. defense starts taking shape in his new wild, weird motion to compel discovery. And this is a motion to compel. Uh, is it Giglio? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Giglio. Jenks and... Uh, Brady material, right? The exculpatory stuff and stuff that you could use to impeach government witnesses. That's right. Brady is exculpatory and uh, Giglio and Jenks are the two seminal rulings on uh, discovery that's necessary to cross-examine a witness. Yeah. So that's that's where that falls out. We also have updates on Representative Scott Perry's phone. Um, we have Ken Cheesebro's fraudulent elector tour. Buy your tickets now. Coming to a town near you. Uh, we coming have to a inf- swing state near you. <laughs> That's right. Coming to a coming to a courthouse near you. Uh, we have information about what Trump lawyer Jennifer Little told the special counsel about her role in the Mar-a-Lago case, and we have some new information in the Trump Twitter account search warrant battle. Whoop whoop. Uh, Also, I want to let everybody know uh, that we're planning an MSW media meetup, like a retreat, like a gathering in D.C. in April for patrons of this podcast, as well as patrons of the Daily Beans and Clean Up on All 45. Everybody's going to be there. So if you've been on the fence about becoming a supporting member, now would be a good time uh, because you'll get to go to that for free. You can pledge at patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote. We look forward to giving a little back with food and drinks, cocktails, mocktails in D.C. this spring. Uh, And with that... Let's start with the big news in D.C. this week that came at the end of the week, this past Friday. First, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Donald Trump is not immune from civil suits that arise out of his inciting the insurrection. Yeah, so these are suits from, like, members of Congress, D.C. police officers, people like that, predominantly. Yeah, blazing game at all, right? And they consolidated them all into one thing because they shared one thing in common. Donald Trump... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was uh, was the defendant in, in those cases. And also Judge Chutkin ruled that he is not immune from criminal prosecution. And we got him in bang, one-two order, like a one-two punch. We got the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in Blasingame saying, nope, not immune. And then we got Judge Chutkin within an hour uh, ruling on that uh, monarchy mi- uh, motion, as, a, as we like to call it. Uh, total presidential immunity. So briefly, like I said, in Blazing Game at all, this is a group of consolidated civil lawsuits against Donald Trump b- brought by, as you said, anti-Capitol police officers, members of Congress. They won the right to continue with their lawsuits when the D.C. Circuit ruled that Donald Trump was not acting in his capacity as president. 
when he gave his speech at the Ellipse on January 6th because he was giving that speech as a candidate for president, not an occupant of the office. That's right. Therefore, the speech can't be considered within the outer perimeters of his duties as president. This is the same ruling DOJ gave when they wouldn't represent Mo Brooks. They said, you were campaigning. You were campaigning during that speech. We aren't going to represent you. We aren't going to sub in mm-hmm. and represent you. And, and DOJ said, this goes for all federal employees. And I said, this does not bode well for Trump. And here we are. Here we are. Now, I covered that ruling on the Daily Beans bonus episode for patrons this weekend. Normally, mm-hmm. I do a recap of the headlines, but I, I'm going to go over the Blazing Game uh, ruling. But since it's not really doesn't really pertain to Jack's criminal investigations, um, we're today instead we're going to discuss Judge Chutkin's ruling on Trump's monarchy motion for absolute presidential immunity. It's a banger, Andy. It's a banger. <laughs> Yes, it is. As she very rarely disappoints in these uh, decisions, and she hasn't in this one either. So like on the very first page, in footnote one, Judge Chutkin explains that she's ruling on the constitutional issues first. Quote, defendant has also moved to dismiss based on statutory grounds and for selective and vindictive prosecution. The court will address those motions separately. The Supreme Court has repeatedly stressed the importance of resolving immunity questions at the earliest possible stage in litigation. The court therefore rules first on the immunity motion and the constitutional motion in which defendant asserts, quote, constitutional immunity from double jeopardy. Uh, Mm, Some others. Yeah. yeah. So she starts off with a, uh, you know, she lays it out. Like, here's how it's going to be right in the Well, Jack Smith footnote. asked her to go first on this. Like, hurry up on these. Because remember, we talked about this interlocutory appeals are the one thing that could delay the March 4th trial because the, these kinds of constitutional issues have to be adjudicated before trial begins. That's right. That's right. If you go forward with the trial and then it's later determined that you stepped on or violated someone's immunity from trial, you've already injured them. So that's the importance in getting that done first. So some other standout quotes from her 48-page ruling include, Defendant contends that the Constitution grants him absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for actions performed within the outer perimeter of his official responsibility while he served as President of the United States, so long as he was not both impeached and convicted for those actions. The Constitution's text, structure, and history do not support that contention. No court or any other branch of government, has ever accepted it. This court will not so hold. Whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, the United States has only one chief executive at a time. That position does not confer lifelong, quote, get out of jail free pass. Mm. That's meaningful. That's that's, that's bold, right? I mean, because when you and I had read his monarchy motion is what we like to call it. We were like, this is, this is turns the history of the United States on its head. That's absolutely right. It's fundamentally inconsistent with just about everything in the constitution. The entire purpose, the history, the intent of the framers was clear. They were doing what they were doing to get out of the hands of an absolute monarch who could do whatever he wanted to them without any recognition of legal process. And so they very clearly went into great lengths not to create a new one here. And, uh, you know, much to uh, Mr. Trump's chagrin. <laughs> yeah. So she goes on to say, defendant concludes that the president may be charged by indictment only in cases where the president has been impeached and convicted by trial in the Senate. 
but defendant is not president, and reading the clause to grant absolute criminal immunity to former presidents would contravene its plain meaning, original understanding, and common sense. In addition to lacking textual or historical support, defendant's interpretation of the clause collapses under the application of common sense. For one, his reasoning is based on the logical fallacy of, quote, denying the antecedent. Now, this one took me a minute to to reload a few times before I understood where she was going, but it really makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So here she explains, from the statement, if the animal is a cat, then it can be a pet. It does not follow that if the animal is not a cat, it cannot be a pet. Okay, you still with me? I'm still with you. All right, woman, go, man, go, go. camera, TV, person, woman, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yet defendant argues that because a president who is impeached and convicted may be subject to criminal prosecution, a president who is not convicted may not be subject to criminal <laughs> prosecution. That's exactly what he argued. So yeah. this is like a combination of... Um, I don't know, linguistic philosopher and some sort of Jedi mind trick. But by the time you get to the end of that paragraph, it makes total sense. She's right. It's logically inconsistent what he's saying. Yeah, it is a logical fallacy, denying the antecedent. And she picked it out. Nobody had, she, you know, nobody had uh, had talked about that. Uh, we were just like, it just doesn't make any sense. He's just being dumb. But <laughs> she right, was right. Like, she went a little deeper than we did in the uh, analysis there, which is good. Absolutely. She then goes on to address the historical precedent, right? And this is kind of what you and I were talking about. Like, this is just, it turns everything on its head. She says, nothing in American history, nothing justifies the absolute immunity that defendant seeks. As discussed above, there's no evidence that the founders understood the Constitution to grant it. And since that time, the Supreme Court, quote, has never suggested that the policy considerations which compel civil immunity for certain government officials also place them beyond the reach of criminal law. She's talking about Nixon there, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. But then she brings up Clinton and she's like, but when you're not doing your duty, when you're outside of your duties, you don't get, you know, you don't get immunity. Yep. And that's civil. And she's like, that's just civil. This is criminal. Nothing ever in the history of anything ever has yeah. been applied to criminal uh, prosecution. Defendant's four-year service as commander-in-chief, I love this one, his four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. Ooh, that is some shade. Ouchie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it's a little ooh, awkward there. That says, that is, says so much. That is like a book in that sentence. She goes on to say, quote, no man in this country, not even a former president, is so high that he is above the law. In his constitutional motion, defendant argues that the indictment should be dismissed because it criminalizes his speech and therefore violates the First Amendment. But it's well established the First Amendment does not protect speech that's used as an instrument of a crime. And consequently, the indictment, which charges the defendant with, among other things, making statements in furtherance of a crime, (laughs) does not violate the defendant's First Amendment rights. Uh, She also found the indictment doesn't violate due process, as we said. It doesn't violate double jeopardy or the impeachment judgment clause. And he was actually arguing if you I was tried by impeachment. And so now it's double jeopardy. But also you can only try me if I'm impeached and convicted. Yeah. So it's just (laughs) it's the double fallacy approach. If I say things that are wrong and then I say two things that are completely contradictory and both wrong, somehow the double negative makes them a positive and they're right. I mean, it's just, um, it's crazy. Yeah. 
and he great. does this all the time. He he argues one side out of one side, one thing out of one side of his mouth and something else out of the other. Like when he wanted to be an officer of the United States for purposes of the Westfall Act, so he couldn't be sued by E. Jean Carroll. But then he doesn't want to be an officer of the United States because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Right. Or he claims he's a candidate for president uh, in the Texas election lawsuit. Or will he, he a candidate, right? And this mm-hmm. is what, what they used in the Blasing Game thing. They're like, you even told us in your motion to intervene in the Texas lawsuit against several swing states brought by uh, Texas Attorney General and 17, others, uh, 17 other attorneys general. He referred to himself as a uh, he's intervening as a private citizen, as a candidate for president. But then he says he's a sitting president when he faces that civil suit for his campaign rally. He, right. he, he does this. And we're going to talk a little bit later in his motion to compel when he, you know, says Russia, the whole Russia, Russia thing was a hoax, but then blames January 6th on Russia. On Russia. So yeah. it's it's that's just how he operates. Yep. Do do as I say, not as I do. I don't know. He, he's the the king of uh, of of contradiction. So next up, Judge Tanya Chotkin has issued a ruling on Trump's weird and vague motion to subpoena what he calls the missing, and I call the not missing January sixth <laughs> committee material. The motion requests leave to issue subpoenas duces tecum to seven non-party individuals: the archivist, the clerk of the house, the current House Administrative Committee. Uh, Richard Sauber, who is Biden's counsel, um, the general counsel of DHS, Barry Barry Loudermilk, and Benny Thompson. Defendants proposed subpoenas centered on certain purportedly missing materials from the select committee's archive. So a couple things here. Um, Subpoena, duces tecum, just a cool Latin phrase. uh, And it just just means uh, a subpoena that requires a witness to produce a document in in furtherance of an ongoing... um, proceeding. So unlike a grand jury subpoena, which requires someone to turn over a document to the government for the purpose of an investigation, a subpoena ducesticum is like to hand over a document within the scope or the process of of a trial or hearing, something like that. Of course, she denies the motion. Quote, Rule 17C subpoenas are not appropriate where the moving party seeks materials procurable reasonably in advance of trial by exercise of due diligence or operate as a general fishing expedition. A pre-trial Rule 17c subpoena, quote, must clear three hurdles. The information sought must be relevant, it must be admissible, and it must be specific. Specific. That's right. You can't just throw these crazy nonsensical demands out at the other side and bog them down in these fishing expeditions for nonspecific uh, or irrelevant material or material that wouldn't be admissible even if you had it. Mm-hmm. So she goes on to say, defendant has not met his burdens with respect to, to the proposed Rule 17C subpoenas. He has not sufficiently justified his requests for either the missing materials themselves or the other five categories of documents related to them. Defendants' proposed subpoenas define, quote, missing materials as certain records the January 6th committee sent to the executive branch that were, quote, transmitted pursuant to the Sauber and Meyer letters. Those records include several subcategories, but the 1-6 committee didn't actually send any material under most of those categories. As the government notes, the Sauber and Meyer letters describe transmitting only written transcriptions 
of witness interviews, not any other records. So it's really only the videos of the interviews and the transcripts of the interviews. Yep. Yep. And and she's like, dude, you got the transcripts two months ago. Right. And the fact that you have the transcripts makes the videos irrelevant. Uh, Trump says the videos, though, might be used for impeachment of witnesses. But Trump provides no basis to conclude the videos could impeach any witnesses. There's that specificity problem mm -hmm. that he has. Yep. Quote, this falls well short of his burden. The relevance prong is not satisfied merely because a defendant can articulate what they hope to find in subpoenaed evidence. Right. Yeah, that, that piece she mentioned earlier, too, like information that you could reasonably procure on your own is also relevant here because to the extent that he's interested in seeing the videos of these of these depositions, he could have watched the committee hearings. He could have, I'm sure there's recordings available of all those January 6th committee hearings where you see a lot of those videos. So this stuff is out there. If he wanted to do the work himself, he could. Right. And then she goes on to say, and the other five categories of stuff that you're looking for, they just don't exist, my man. There's nothing that's missing. She goes, right. the broad scope of the records that you seek and your vague description of their potential relevance resembles less a good faith effort to obtain identified evidence than they do a general fishing expedition that attempts to use Rule 17 subpoenas as a discovery device. And if the moving party cannot reasonably specify the information contained or believed to be contained in the documents sought by merely hopes that something useful will turn up, this is a sure sign that the subpoena is being misused. So she's really? accusing him of misusing the 17C subpoena. So for those reasons, she denied the defendant's motion for those subpoenas. Yep. So well done. Nope. Can't have it. <laughs> you gotta be more specific and relevant, my friend. Uh, and also, these things don't exist. So, but you know, thanks. Um, and, and it's interesting. You know, it's we don't usually see a judge accusing legal counsel of misusing a process. Right. Usually, they just approve or deny. So that I thought was a little bit relevant. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting, too, to see. Like, we expect appeals of every single motion that gets denied. That's what we've seen so far. Um, these sort of motions where you have a trial court making very factually based decisions on the most basic rules of court issues, these are ones that appellate courts are really loath to weigh in on. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, like, if if we get an appeal from this one, I think there's a pretty good chance that you'll get a quick non-decision from the circuit court and you know i can't imagine the supreme court ever weighing in on something like this this these matters are considered to be well within the province of the trial court judge you know they're not like making new law here it's not a constitutional issue like the ones we were just talking about before uh so i don't i don't see these as major drivers of significant delay no and the dc circuit knows that this is needs to go fast and so if if they even decide to hear it it'll it'll be i think a pretty expedited briefing schedule like their briefing schedule for the limited very limited gag order judge chuck right. can uh placed on them i mean it was like a week for you a week for you you each get 20 minutes go and yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> and so uh i think and they understand and the judge here is articulating uh in that first footnote these have to go first because these could these are interlocutory appeals all right. I, I can't wait to talk to you, Andy, about this motion to compel <laughs> Here it comes. Trump. But we have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money 
that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Okay, so one of the weirdest documents I have read to date has to be Trump's motion to compel discovery in the D.C. case. We're still in D.C., the federal case. Uh, and as I read it, Andy, some of Trump's defense starts to take shape. For sure. Yep. It appears that he's going to argue that the election was compromised by the Russian solar winds hack and that he didn't cause the riot on January 6th. Rather, it was a Russian effort to sow anger and discord in the United States that had everybody upset that day. Wow. So Mr. Russia hoax is blaming Russia, along with Iran <laughs> and China. And he says he will prove that he was right to question election integrity and fire Krebs when he said it was the most secure election in history, et cetera. And here's, this is from yeah, the opening. Don't you feel like a little bit of this is an over-response to the prosecution signaling in their filing that we discussed last week or the week before, like, we're coming right at you over January 6th in this case. We are going to prove at trial that you are responsible for the riot. You called it. It was all you. Yeah. And, and some of the stuff that Jack Smith got from Twitter, which we're going to talk about shortly, probably uh, really helps bolster that case. I think we might see a lot of that uh, come up as evidence. But this is, for, this is a statement from Trump's opening here. To prop up the Biden administration's preferred political advocacy regarding the 2020 election, the indictment endorses the alleged views of, quote, senior White House attorneys, senior leaders of the Justice Department, the intelligence community, Department of Homeland Security, cybersecurity, and infrastructure security agency... <laughs> 
a former CISA director and others, you know, to prop up their preferred political advocacy, they endorsed the views of basically everyone. Uh, basically <laughs> all the people he hired. Yeah, all his, <laughs> all his advisors, his cabinet secretaries, his lawyers, his White House counsel. Yeah, okay, that's the, that's the Biden's go-to team to to manipulate the election in their favor. Uh-huh. That just that just made me laugh. Next, he says that because General Milley said Trump told Christopher Miller, right, acting SecDef, Secretary of Defense, to have enough National Guardsmen available for January 6th because he, he told Christopher Miller, make sure you have enough. That somehow means that he called the National Guard out. And this is where they're kind of nitpicking. Kosh Patel testified to this over in the Colorado Section 3 of the 14th Amendment case saying that mm-hmm. Trump asked for 10,000 National Guardsmen. Trump, blah, blah, blah. But never on that day, right? And they don't really talk right. about that. And the events, he says, of January 6th are not his fault because they delayed sending out the guard. Right. They. Despite that memo from Chris Miller that we all saw saying only the president can authorize the guard. So Donald said, make sure there's a National Guard, but only I can authorize their use on that day. But I'm not going to authorize their use on that day. And then he also wants all the documents and communications about the deployment of the guard that day and any other security matters. But again, he's not being specific here. And I I don't I haven't looked at the the tests to get this kind of discovery, but I'm assuming it also has to be specific. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't just be like, I compel you to hand over everything that says I'm innocent. You know, like Yeah, or give me everything that has the word uh <laughs> Cash in it. Right. (laughs) It's got to be a little bit more directed than that. Right. Um, And he also says he wants statements um, by anyone in the government saying Trump didn't incite the riot. Kind of along the lines of what you were just describing. Mm -hmm. I want all statements by anyone at the DOJ or the government that says I'm innocent, basically, is what he's saying. Uh, But he, he and he only gives one example, which doesn't actually help him. Okay. A DOJ prosecutor said, and I quote, nor can there be any reasonable claim that President Trump intended to or actually authorized the defendant's particular criminal conduct. This was a prosecutor in a January 6th rioter case. Trump thinks that means Trump didn't incite the riot when it actually means Trump's incitement doesn't exonerate the rioters. And Jack Smith says the department's position in other January 6th cases, that the defendant's actions did not absolve any individual rioter of responsibility for that rioter's actions, even if the rioter took them at the defendant's direction, is in no way inconsistent with the indictment's allegations here. That's his only example he has of someone in the government saying Trump is innocent, and it doesn't even say that. I so. mean, it's it's ridiculous. Clearly doesn't accomplish what he's looking for. But I, I feel like on a fundamental level, these these demands are he's basically asking for things that he could easily go find mm-hmm. like statements like non-described just rando statements of government people in def- that he thinks defend his position in this case like go look at the january 6 cases go go grab those uh transcripts. Go talk to the lawyers involved. Find your own frigging statements. Build your own defense rather than just saying, I want any time anyone said I'm a good guy. 
go out and find that and send it to <laughs> For me because it yeah. proved that I'm a good guy. Yeah. Anyway. And he, he also wants all information on it. You remember when Russia hacked Sunburst Solar Winds? Yes. And they got into some government uh, agencies. He wants all the information on that because I, I believe he's trying to argue that that is what compromised the election results was Russia. That's really fascinating because I'm going to guess that across 60 lawsuits challenging the results of the election, they never made that, art- that, that <laughs> argument a single time because no. there's no evidence of it. But um, yeah, I mean, he's just swinging at the rafters with these, with these theories. But again, let's remember, all he's got to do is convince one juror. Mm-hmm. He just needs to plant enough doubt in the mind of one juror and he's off the hook. So it is it is a fascinating filing because he is you were getting a little bit of a peek into some of the crazy things that he's going to say uh in an effort to create that sort of uh doubt. It's a still with all the evidence and the facts and everything that we have on the side of the prosecutors it's still a tough case for them because it's a complicated case, it's an emotionally charged case, it cuts to the heart of things that mean a lot to a lot of people uh no matter where you are on the political spectrum. And so they're in the unenviable spot of having to kind of anticipate these uh, defenses and go out now and collect evidence or witnesses that they might be able to use if they need to later in the trial to kind of knock this stuff down and keep the jurors focused on the story they're trying to tell. Yeah. And that that seed of doubt that he's trying to plant is Russia, China, Iran. They were all trying to interfere in the election. CISA knew it. They briefed Jeffrey Clark on it. That's why Jeffrey Clark wrote that letter to Georgia. That's going to be his thing so that maybe one juror is like, okay, he was just trying to protect us from foreign election interference, which is something he completely denied for his entire four years in office. (laughs) In a weird way, it's like trying to use the government's credibility against it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, oh, these guys have been telling you for years how bad Russia is and how 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 dreadfully they undermined the 2016 election. Look, they did it again in 2020. Of course, there's no one from the government said that in 2020, mm-hmm. um, and there's no evidence of it. But that's not going to stop him. Yep. Next, Trump wants information on all undercover agents at the Capitol on Jan 6, and not because he wants to say they induced the riot but that the riot happened because those undercover agents failed to stop it. Mm-hmm. Right? There's all these FBI agents up there, not uh, or sources, informants, or actual undercover employees, as we refer to them, that they should have done more to stop the riot that I started. Okay, he doesn't add that last part to the claim. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's... Russia started the riot, remember? Right, right, right. And again, you know... We learned about the FBI informants who were there on the Capitol or near the Capitol there on January 6th through the January 6th cases and the discovery that was given by the government to the Jan 6 defendants. That was a, there's a lot of reporting on this. Like, go find it for yourself. I don't, right. I don't it's just. Um, Didn't Mike Johnson just release all the video? Go get it. Yeah, go get it. Go get it. <laughs> anyway. So he also wants all the underlying intelligence that supports the 2016 uh, ICA, or the Intel Community Assessment. That was, of course, the highly classified document that we put together at the direction of President Obama to kind of summarize everything the government knew 
about Russian, malign Russian activity targeting the 2016 presidential election. And you can read that online. There's a de- un- or declassified version of it out there. I highly recommend it. So but Trump he is wants asking, the un- fully unclassified version and all of the supporting classified information. That's right. right. That he, he used, wants, that was used to put that together. And he's been screaming about this for years. He tried to declassify the entire thing and release all the underlying intelligence right before the end of his uh, uh, term. So here we are uh, shooting at that again. So he wants um, he wants that because he intends to prove that he was very concerned about Russian election interference, and that's why the public questioned the, the election results in 2020, because of foreign influence operations by Russia and the U.S. And here he does ask for specific documents, but uh, that part is actually under seal in the classified supplement to the filing, which we can't see. Yeah, and he can ask for specific things because he actually probably already has them. Yeah, you have, to, from you have to imagine he's seen all this stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think he gave it all over to John Solomon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. So uh, then he asked for uh, all proof of voter fraud, infrastructure compromises, and election irregularities. I mean, really? Uh, <laughs> all things that he, that he claimed Russia didn't do in 2016, he wants proof of all that stuff. Uh, he claims Russia's hack of... Uh, sunburst, solar winds, compromise the elections. But that's the only thing he specific, specifically mentions here. Everything else is just a vague demand for voting machine uh, and election problems. Mm. So the, all the money that he paid to all those research firms that found nothing, all of his lawyers who went out to try to find fraud, that he sent them to steal voting machines and breach voting machines, couldn't find anything, couldn't put him in any of his um, lawsuits. He wants all that. That's right. He'd like okay. all that stuff now, please. Trump is also demanding all the info on the DNI's briefing of Jeffrey Clark, where uh, the DNI told Clark that there wasn't any foreign influence that would have changed the outcome of the election. Now, Trump doesn't believe that that was the message, and he wants the, quote, real info that was briefed because he claimed it caused Clark to write those letters. So put a pin in this one because it's going to come up later in the show when we talk about Scott Perry's text messages because Perry texted Clark about that briefing with DNI John Radcliffe. Mm. And uh, we're in the home stretch here on this. Trump is asking for some Giglio info on Pence, meaning that's information that could be damaging to Pence's credibility. Specifically, he wants all the info on the investigation into Pence's handling of the classified documents. So the guy that's been indicted for mishandling classified info. Yeah, that guy. I, I should say for for retention of national defense information to be to be accurate. Mm-hmm. He wants to impeach as a witness the guy who wasn't indicted for mishandling classified <laughs> information. Although from the text it appears Trump wants to argue that the Biden administration and Pence and all of CISA and DHS, everybody, they're all on the same team uh, for the Biden narrative to interfere in the election. And they're all out to get him. So of course, yeah. that's what he's uh, trying to. That's this, another seed he's trying to plant uh, in the jury's mind. Then he asks for all the info on the DO, all DOJ coordination with the Biden administration, of which there is none, uh, claiming it helps his defense to show that the investigation was shoddy. And that he intends to attack the reliability of the investigation. And he also seeks non-specified communications about political bias, disagreements between the FBI and prosecutors, which is normal, by the way. He, you know, he says they didn't want to, you know, the FBI didn't want to do a search warrant. And Wyndham had to go to the inspector general and the postal inspector to get these things done. And the FBI said no. So that exonerates him. 
but it was his guy, Dan Tuono, who was blocking it. And I knew this would come up, Andy. He wants all the documents related to Mike Sherwin's appearance on 60 Minutes, which violated DOJ policy. However, Sherwin also discussed the Oath Keepers case during that interview, and those dudes are all in prison right now, so I'm not too yeah, worried Yeah, there's about basically that. no legal defense that's, if Sherwin violated DOJ policy, therefore I'm innocent. Right. It doesn't, it does, those two things do not, uh, don't connect in any way. No. Yeah. So, Allison, we just put a pin in the classified briefing that DNI John Radcliffe gave to Jeffrey Clark in early January 2021 um, and how Trump wants all the documents and prep work related to that briefing. Well, that meeting came up this week in Scott Perry's text messages. Mm -hmm. So, a redacted copy of these texts from Scott Perry's phone was unsealed Wednesday and then taken down very quickly, which likely indicates that they were mistakenly unsealed and then and then taken off the docket. So these texts show uh, Perry's communications with unindicted, uh, still unindicted co-conspirator Jeff Clark. From uh, Caitlin Polance and CNN, we get, the text included several communications in late December 2020 and early January 2021 with DOJ's Jeffrey Clark, a Trump appointee sympathetic to contesting the election as Trump considered installing Clark as attorney general. Perry texted Clark, quote, POTUS seems very happy with your response. I read it just as you dictated, according to court records. Then Clark responded, quote, I'm praying. This makes me quite nervous and wonder if I'm worthy or ready. To that, uh, Perry replies, quote, you are the man. I have confirmed it. And that, that came uh, late at night on December 30th, 2020. Perry went on to say, God does what he does for a reason. Hmm. Yeah. So then on January 1st, 2021, Perry texted Clark, who was about to receive an intelligence briefing he requested about election security to, quote, make sure, now again, this is Perry telling Clark, to make sure he, meaning John Radcliffe, gives you exactly what dot, dot, dot you need. All right. So Clark asked Perry to tell Trump to provide him access to classified information. Perry said that Trump would. It was then that Clark updated the language of his letter from, quote, the DOJ has concerns to, quote, the DOJ has evidence of election irregularities. So this is really fascinating. You, you, right. you get like an insight as to this briefing. So, so Clark, who is the guy that's been designated point man on writing the letter that DOJ will send to some of these uh, uh, states, these swing states, basically giving them the reason to throw out the election results, claiming falsely that DOJ has evidence of election irregularities, evidence of voter fraud, and therefore they should put on the brakes, don't certify whatever. So the setup to that meeting between Ratcliffe, who's totally on team Trump, he's Trump's uh, installed DNI. He says, make sure Ratcliffe gives you exactly what you need, meaning, possibly meaning, not tells you the truth, not gives you the intelligence, not gives you the best, you know, analytical assessments that the USG has at this point about election security. But no, Gives you what you need. I'll tell you what, though. He was one of our Ocho Nostra, wasn't he, Ratcliffe? Oh, yeah. yeah. And he had to testify. Uh, he was claiming privilege. And he did testify. And there's reporting that he told Jack Smith that he didn't see any election irregularities. 
Uh, and that could be very damaging to whatever Trump is trying to find here. Because Ratcliffe put together a report on January 7th saying there's, yeah. there was no election interference. There was no uh, anything that would change, you know, outcome determinative election interference here from foreign uh, influence. But he would also have told Jack Smith the conversations he had with Donald Trump about this briefing. And so I think that I don't... And potentially Scott Perry. Yeah, and I don't understand why Trump wants this. This is not going to be good for him. He, I think he's, you know, he's shooting at what he hopes it will be. I can imagine the scene, right? I've been in a thousand of these briefings. The DNI comes in. The DNI doesn't actually provide the briefing. Analysts provide the briefings, right? The, the subject matter experts. So the DNI typically like opens it up, says a couple of introductory things, gives the bottom line up front sort of big picture wave top view, and then the analysts give the details and then answer the questions. So there still could be a fair amount of of disagreements from the people. If you put all those people together and said, what, what did Radcliffe say? I mean, Clark might say, well, no, the impression that I got from what he said and everybody else said was there was all kinds of problems in the election. You might then have Radcliffe take the stand and say, no, that's not what I told him at all. So it's, it, it could be a, a diverse kind of group of opinions and Trump will undoubtedly pick the ones that support his narrative and, and run forward with those. Yeah, and Perry also, uh, some other messages, received. he received a message from a former colleague of Trump uh, asking uh, if Perry could help persuade Trump and then Vice President Mike Pence and others to use the vice president's power to change the debate rules, or, uh, yeah. you know, for January 6th. Yeah. And um, Perry's election texts were described and quoted by federal district judge Beryl Howell in an opinion that she wrote in December 2022, which we know about, but we didn't know all about, but now we've seen it all, uh, as the special counsel's office prosecutors swept in cell phone records from several of Trump top, Trump's top allies before deciding to charge him. Now, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals above Howell looked at her opinion and other underlying records uh, confidentially, but the appeals court briefly made Howell's writing public on Wednesday afternoon, again, before taking it down, suggesting that it was a mistake Oops. to unseal it. <laughs> Um, now, Hal confidentially reviewed more than 2,000 documents Perry had sought to keep from investigators after they seized his cell phone, including these text messages. And Hal had found that the messages should be available to special counsel investigators looking at top government officials. But the appeals court curtailed it a little bit, mm -hmm. curtailed some of what the investigators could see of Perry's uh, text messages. And we covered that decision, uh, which is a public decision. We covered it, uh, it when it came out this past September so. Anyway, those are still out there. Washington Post has them all published if you want to take a look at them. Um, and it's it's quite a bit. All right, we will be... <laughs> this is fun. Um, we have the real Twitter files, Andy. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about them right after this quick break. Stick around, everybody. Yep. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I 
want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler. How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This week, we got more of a peek into Jack Smith's search warrant for Trump's Twitter account information and a Judge Boesberg ruling to keep the rest of the information under seal, along with parts of the search warrant that show what Jack Smith was looking for. Remember, we were trying to guess. Yes. Uh, and we, we were pretty right on. But it seems yeah, like a standard... Close. Seems like a standard Twitter search warrant. You know, it seems like kind of a template. Yep. And here's some excerpts from Judge Boesberg's ruling. As part of special counsel's investigation, the government sought and obtained a search warrant for Twitter records associated with at real Donald Trump. After the investigation yielded an indictment of former President Trump, a press coalition and Twitter sought to unseal documents associated with the warrant. Since then, large swaths of these proceedings have been unsealed with government consent, though several documents remain under lock and key. The court now concludes that further disclosure is not warranted and will deny what remains of the press application. He go on to say on January 17th, this is almost a year ago, 2022, Jack Smith sought the warrant for Trump's Twitter account. Twitter, under Elon Musk, tried to block it and then tried to get permission to tell Trump about the subpoena. But he lost that fight. Mm -hmm. But I still bet he told him. Uh, the court has unsealed a bunch of stuff, including... <laughs> The court's opinion affirming the denial of Twitter's motion to vacate and an additional 509 pages of materials from the district court litigation, including briefings, orders and opinions. The judge said, but that didn't satisfy the press. They filed for all warrant application materials, all seal sealing related motions and orders, the search warrant docket sheet and any other judicial records as to which there uh, is no longer a compelling need for secrecy. Now, Twitter joined that application. The government opposed but agreed to unseal the docket sheet. And once the docket sheet was unsealed, it made clear the documents that were still at issue. The warrant application, the warrant application's lengthy supporting affidavit, and the warrant that issued, which is nearly identical to the application. The NDO application, which is Twitter, you can't tell Trump about this. Right. The government's ex parte opposition, along with its exhibits to Twitter's motion to vacate and the NDO and stay the warrant. And when, uh, when a party wants to unseal records, there's something called the Hubbard factors which are weighed, yes. and I know you're very familiar with these. Factor one, need for public access. The judge said that weighs heavily, not heavily, but it weighs in favor of disclosure because the, the government doesn't dispute the public really wants to know about this stuff. Correct. <laughs> but, yeah, that's an easy one. 
The judge says that has to be weighed against the other factors, though. Factor two, the extent of previous public access. This factor is neutral because there is an unruly mix of secret and public facts. <laughs> I love that unruly mix. I'm going to yes. have to start using that in daily life. I like it. Factor three, the fact that someone has objected to disclosure and who that is. Uh, the government's opposition adds slightly to the case for non-disclosure, keeping the rest of this stuff mm -hmm. under lock and key. Factor four, the strength of any property and privacy interests. And this weighs moderately in the case to keep everything, the rest of the stuff sealed because of the safety of the swearing government agent and the individuals in addition to Trump that special counsel considers relevant to the investigation. Their yeah, privacy. although you got to imagine a world where the press would totally be happy with getting these documents and just leaving the, the identities of those people still uh, redacted, but nevertheless. Yeah, totally. They, they, they did a lot during the Mueller investigation, and there yep. were all these sleuths online trying to figure out what fit behind the redaction bars, mm -hmm. what names. Uh, factor five, prejudice to the party opposing disclosure, which is the government. And this is the weightiest factor. Although Trump has been indicted, quote, investigations of other individuals continues. That is what special counsel Jack Smith said in a statement on August 1st, 2023, just a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. Love the it. Government I know. <laughs> it, it, Love it, it. It also weighs heavily in favor of us being right that he's going to indict the rest of these folks just maybe after the Trump trial goes. <laughs> so Double fingers the, crossed, right? Here. Yeah, double fingers crossed. The investigation continues. He said that a couple months ago yep. into others in D.C. Um, and he, the government ho hopes to keep private, quote, details about the government's investigative methods, including the precise information it sought from the materials Twitter was ordered to produce, specific events and individuals of interest to the investigation, and the government's internal procedures for warrant execution. Uh, Twitter's assumption that the indictment has laid bare all there is to know about the investigation is insufficient to discount the government's compelling interest here. Yep. Factor six, the purposes for which the documents were introduced, that favors unsealing for reasons similar to those discussed concerning the public interest, right? Right. Ultimately, the undeniable need to protect an ongoing criminal investigation tips the balance toward the government's request to continue sealing. For the foregoing reasons, the court will deny what remains of the press's application. A separate order so stating will issue this day. So, nope, yeah. you can't have the rest of it. The investigation is ongoing. The D.C. January 6th investigation is ongoing. Yeah, and, and I, I have to it. say, in my experience, the factor five is really that what tips it in every case. Mm -hmm. And I think that people who are following this very closely, which is uh, our listeners certainly, you have almost a little bit of a warped perspective on how these decisions were made because there has been a lot of prior uh, documents that were originally sealed, later being unsealed and shared with the public in some capacity. That almost never happens in your day-to-day -day federal criminal cases and almost uh, never in the context of an affidavit supporting a search warrant. The affidavit is really the most important thing. That's where you lay out all the facts of the probable cause those affidavits never get unsealed unless a defendant is indicted and the case goes to trial. You can then get the affidavit turned over in discovery and sometimes unsealed, and it becomes an uh, it may become a a, a piece of evidence in, in the trial. But if you think about the number of investigations and the number of warrants that are that are executed in cases that never become the subject of a major trial issue, um, that stuff remain sealed forever. So 
DOJ did call Trump's bluff, though, on unseal the affidavit for this search on my they did. home. They did. And that was a bold and, <laughs> you know, a, a really rare step by DOJ. I think it was a great one and it was necessary in this very strange case, but it doesn't And it was still heavily redacted. Way. It was yeah. still heavily redacted. But mm-hmm. yeah, we got a little bit of a peek in that. Yeah. But we also, a couple of days before this ruling came out, we got something else. That's right. The judge unsealed six pages of the 14-page Twitter search warrant. Uh, And Allison, you and I reported this almost a year ago, and we had some guesses about what Jack Smith was after. That's right. We were positing that they definitely want to be able to prove where Trump was and what he said on Twitter. No doubt. Is it his device? Was he logged in? His IP address? All that metadata. And we all, I was like, he wants those DMs. He wants those direct messages. Oh, hell yeah. Um, you got to have the Twitter. DMs. But, okay. but this, this lays out, this is a hell of a warrant. But I, you know, I have to think that this is probably what they issue when they go after anybody's Twitter stuff. When you're looking for, it's possible that you could drop a warrant that has very specific language. But generally, when you're using it, uh, you're using the warrant in pursuit of a broader investigation. You're going to go for everything they have, every piece of information in there that's relevant uh, to your investigation. So, so here's the language from the warrant. It requested all of Trump's business records and subscriber information, including <clears throat> identity, contact information date of birth, phone number, physical address, all usernames, all associated accounts, including those linked by cookies, IP addresses, email addresses, or other device identifiers, uh, length of service, types of services utilized, and credit cards on file, devices used to log into the account. That one really jumped out at me. Information about networks and connections used, all advertising information the IP addresses used to create, log in, and use the account and associated dates, times, and port numbers from October 2020 to January 21. Privacy and account settings, uh, change and the history of changes of any of those settings, communications between Twitter and any person regarding the account, that's interesting too, uh, including contacts with support and records of actions taken. So if anyone, not just Trump, but anyone contacted Twitter, like Twitter support uh, with uh, respect to the account, they want that those uh, the actions that were taken and the substance of those communications. Um, yeah, which so of if, course, if Trump filed a TOS report or contacted Twitter at all to ask them to take down any tweets that he didn't like, Jackson has those. There you go. Um, so what, what initially jumped out to me from this one um, is, to me, this is a search. Well, so they're looking for a lot of things here, but but t- a top of that list is they are looking for other users of the account, people who access the account, people who may have drafted posts, people who posted, people who monitor the account, that sort of thing. Um, and every one of those people could potentially be a witness to Trump's intent, to Trump's state of mind. So if you're just some flunky working in the White House and you have access to the account for the purpose of posting things, uh, let's say a particular post becomes central to the government's case, um, you could call that person to say, okay, did Trump write this or did you write it? And if you wrote it, did he approve it? Did he read it? Did What did he say when he told you to go ahead and post it? So all those little kind of facts could be interesting pieces of evidence that go directly to intent. The other thing those users could help you with, and this we talked about just a second ago, um, 
the government is anticipating defenses and a possible defense here could be if there's a tweet or a post that's central to the government's case, they're thinking, well, Trump could always say, well, I didn't post that. Somebody else did. I didn't know that they had posted this language. I didn't approve it. Um, And this way, having identified all those people ahead of time, you would, of course, interview them, bring them to the special counsel's office, maybe the grand jury if they have something good, and figure those things out ahead of time so you could counteract one of those defenses on trial. Yeah, for sure. All right. So Jack Smith also wanted all communications and content from the Trump Twitter account from October 2020 to January 21, including all tweets created, drafted, favorited, liked, or retweeted by Trump, including deleted tweets and all associated multimedia, metadata, and logs. And here we go. The content of all direct messages sent from, received by, or stored in draft form associated with the Trump account, including all attachments, multimedia, header info, metadata, and logs. There it is. It's what we predicted a year ago. There it is. Yep. They also requested information relating to all interactions between Trump and other Twitter users, including all users Trump followed, unfollowed, muted, unmuted, blocked or unblocked, and the content from those notifications tab, uh, all lists of Twitter users that liked or retweeted Trump's tweets, and oh my God, that's a huge list, (laughs) and all tweets where Trump's account was mentioned by other users. I mean- Well, if you're trying to prove that he's the one that made everybody mad about January 6th, then you've got millions and millions and millions of people retweeting and reposting him. That can go go against his uh, idea that Russia did this. Yeah, but what would he have, like 20 million users or something, or followers? Something like that, yeah. Or was it seven? No, that was... No, I think he was at 20 million something followers. So this is a lot of information for Twitter to pull together. Not that I feel bad for them in any way, but it is a lot of stuff. Uh, they requested all contacts and related sync information, all related metadata and logs. That's da- interesting, because that means, you know how Trump will be like, bring in your contact list. How Twitter mm-hmm. will Twitter Twitter will ask you if you want to add your contacts on Twitter. Oh, so yeah. Th- that yeah, yeah, syncs to his contact list in his phone, and they want all that. Yeah. Fascinating. All data associated with Trump's profile page, um, all multimedia associated with Trump's account, all records of searches, that one is a good one too, um, really goes to, you've seen that a lot in criminal cases now where they'll go back and say, and the defendant the day before the homicide went on Google and searched how to kill your wife. You know, that sort of thing. That's kind of what this looks like. Like who else was he searching for? What else was he searching for? It really speaks to a kind of state of mind issue. Um, So they requested all searches between October, 2020 and January, 2021. All location information, including all locational data collected by any plugins, widgets, or the, quote, tweet with location service, and all information about links Trump posted, including the number of times the link was clicked. The other eight pages of the warrant are redacted and will stay that way pursuant to Bozberg's order. That's fascinating. The, the, the location services from all other widgets and stuff, um, that's like... You know, anything connected to Twitter that pops an ad up for you because you're nearby. Yeah. Um, that kind of Twitter location widget is different from turning on your location when you tweet, but it can also help pinpoint where you are on the globe when you when you posted a specific tweet. Yes. And any other widget or app that's connected to Twitter that does that as well 
they would also have all of that geolocation information. Yeah, now that's really super relevant in a case, in a normaler, more normal case, where the defendant is not someone whose location is pretty much known 24-7-365. You know, he was the president. You probably could use other means to figure out where he was. But this again gets at the issue of other users. Like, if you have that kind of data from someone who's clearly not where you know Trump was at that time, then you know that that someone had uh, privileges or rights or access to the account in a, in a significant way. Maybe they were writing things, maybe not, maybe with Trump's knowledge, maybe not. So these are all very relevant questions for the prosecutors. Yeah. And um, before we head down to Florida, we have one last update from D.C., and I say this is from D.C., even though it's kind of technically from Fulton County, but the cheese, co-conspirator number five in the D.C. indictment, is going on tour. He asked the Fulton County Probation Office for permission to travel to Nevada and Arizona along with D.C. Uh, and as it turns out, CNN re- is reporting that he is cooperating with prosecutors in Nevada investigating the fraudulent elector scheme. And uh, from your colleagues at CNN, Ken Chesbro has agreed to sit down with Nevada investigators in hopes of avoiding prosecution there. So he's also, you know, real quick, I mentioned that kind of glazed over it. He asked permission to travel to D.C. as well. Yeah. Um, he's already pled guilty down in Georgia. He seems like he's really happy to flip and cooperate and help. Uh, so, Andy, how could this cooperation impact the special counsel investigation? He is one of the six unindicted co-conspirators. He is. Um, I love this story. It's got so many dimensions to it. And, and I hear like Willie Nelson on the road again, like in the <laughs> back of my head as, we're, as, as you were reading this. But yeah, so the, it's not unexpected because his plea agreement actually required him to cooperate with investigations of this matter, this material, the fake elector stuff in Georgia, any follow-on investigations in Georgia and any other states. So that was a little bit of a foreshadowing it was not surprising they granted him the permission to travel to those places. He's clearly trying to keep himself out of jail in those states, but it's not going to help him from the from playing a role in the Jack Smith case if, in fact, the prosecutors decide to bring him in. He will either be a witness or a defendant in a follow-on case if one is brought. If he tries to stay the role of defendant, it's really almost impossible for him to do that because he now will be on the record testifying under oath in multiple states because each one of these interviews with prosecutors and investigators in Georgia and these follow-on states is going to be done. He's going to have to swear uh, you know, to tell the truth in those interviews. So they become relevant uh, prior statements. And in those statements, presumably, he's making admissions about his own fault. So it almost seems impossible that he could ever uh, defend himself against a federal case uh, substantively, which would make him basically he'd have to be a cooperator and a witness. Yeah. And and the feds don't hand out misdemeanors uh, no. <laughs> generally. Uh, <laughs> no. It reminds me of the quote in My Blue Heaven where the guy's like, they don't have misdemeanors here, just felonies. Um, <laughs> yeah. So... You know, he's it's generally from what I've seen over the last several years. And you can you know, you can talk about this just for a second, Andy. It's usually if you're you're facing like 15 counts, felony counts, we'll get you on one or two and drop the rest. But you're still going to face a little probably a little bit of jail time. 
uh, depending on the robustness of your cooperation. Yeah, that's absolutely how it works. You would have to come in, you know, they charge you with what they had, good cases, and that's, you know, half a dozen, maybe a dozen counts, let's say. You decide to cooperate. You have to then come in and tell the government everything that you, everything you know about that, but also every other crime you've ever committed, things they don't know about. And people don't, that's a piece that most people don't appreciate. So the proffer session, those well, interviews- Well, that's why the Michael Cohen wasn't uh, an official cooperator. That's right. That's right. So the, that proffer session is much more expansive at the federal level than it is at the state level. And once you've done that, the government will come back with like a proposal. Okay, we'll drop 11 of the 12 charges. You plead guilty to the 12th one. That subjects you to XYZ amount of time in jail. We hold off sentencing you until your cooperation is done. And at the end of that, if you cooperate well, you tell us the truth, you give us good information. We go in front of the judge and we say, uh, he's facing this much time, but he's provided this substantive level of cooperation. And the judge is then free to downwardly depart from that uh, sentence, uh, uh, recommended sentence. So it also gives the prosecutors the opportunity to say to a jury, if you're testifying in front of them, yes, he admitted to all these crimes and he got a benefit for his testimony, but you can still believe his testimony because if he doesn't tell you the truth today, he's still going to jail for a long time. That's the crux of what makes a federal cooperator still believable in the eyes of jurors because there's still something hanging over their heads. They have to, if they get caught lying, all benefits go away. So that that's how it would work. Yeah, I, I again, I've got my blue heaven with Steve Martin in my head where he's testifying in a mob trial. And then they're like, what would you get for your testimony? Oh, I got a nice house. I'm in a witness protection program. And he's like, yeah, did you get this? Did you get a check? Do they pay every month? And he's like, that's not all I get. And they're like, oh, what, what, what do you mean? You know, and he's like, I get to never see my family again. <laughs> I get to live in a place and I'm sure it's very nice. But from a man who grew up on the streets of the city that never sleeps, it's hell on earth. You know, it's just, it's so, <laughs> Steve Martin is so funny in that movie. If you guys, everyone, this is my new endorsement today. Watch My Blue Heaven. There's all right, that's a good one. That's a good one. a lot that comes up. Uh, all right, we have to take a quick break. We'll head down to Florida and we'll do some listener questions. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client 
the judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. We're going to head down to Florida. Um, there's one story in Florida this week. It comes from uh, Falders, Ms. Falders at ABC. It's a great scoop here. One of former President Donald Trump's current attorneys told special counsel Jack Smith's team that within days of the Justice Department's subpoena for the documents last year, uh, she very clearly warned Trump that if he failed to fully comply, but then swore he did, quote, it's going to be a crime. <laughs> That's according to sources familiar with the matter. I don't know anyone who's ever gotten advice from a lawyer. Theoretically, many of you are out there. It's very rarely that clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and your lawyer says, if you do X, that's a crime. That's advice you really got to you gotta open up your ears and take that on board. Mm-hmm. And this is Jennifer Little, who, along with Corcoran, were forced to testify about things under the crime fraud exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, she told investigators Trump absolutely understood the warning which came during a pivotal meeting at Mar-a-Lago with Trump and Evan Corcoran, who had recently joined Trump's legal team. So yeah. I think that's interesting that both lawyers were at that meeting. I think that's a really key point because, yeah, we basically had the substance of this before from likely Evan Corcoran's now infamous grand jury testimony, which he provided under the crime fraud exception. So you already have theoretically one witness, Corcoran, who can say, yes, we warned him and yeah, he understood it. Notes. But the importance of having the other one is if you don't have that that second attorney, in this case, Jennifer Little, also prepared to testify, if you just don't cover that base, then Trump can say, well, there was another person there and they didn't say that or they disagreed or, you know, he can use the fact that you don't have both of them testifying in sync to create some... Um, you know, uh, mistrust and and ambiguity around what he was actually told and what he thought about it. Mm. But now, not so much because the two of them can all say the same listen, thing. Listen, look, President Trump, CISA, Ratcliffe, DHS, White House Counsel, Deputy White House Counsel, eight hundred attorneys, <laughs> two research firms. That that my all my lawyers. Come on, they're all they're all. It's all the deep state. It's all, it, was all a, it was all a long-range Biden campaign tactic mm, yeah. <laughs> to, be, to prevail in 2024 <laughs> or something. I don't know. Crazy. Yeah. And, and what, what Jennifer Little allegedly told Smith's team earlier this year may shed further light on how Smith came to accuse Trump of knowingly violating the law, saying his June 9th indictment against Trump, uh, he said in the, the indictment that the former president defied a subpoena by hiding more than 100 classified documents from the FBI and even his own legal team and then having his legal team certify otherwise. Jennifer Little is a former Georgia former Georgia state prosecutor. She is currently representing Trump in Fulton so County, amazing. Georgia. Currently representing him in Georgia. 
Um, Where does this happen? I mean, I this is another name, right, on the list of people who have cooperated with prosecutors, provided evidence basically against Trump, and are still working for him. Mm-hmm. Right? Tavares, yep. uh, Susie, what's her name? I can't remember her last name. Wiles, po- I think. Wiles, yeah, the political consultant. Corcoran. Now Jennifer. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, after the DOJ subpoenaed Trump, and don't forget, prosecutors wanted to execute a search warrant, but Dan Tuono at the WFO Washington field office said no. Uh, so they got a subpoena. Yep. Anyhow, after that subpoena was issued, Jennifer Little suggested retaining an attorney who had handled federal cases before, and sh- they brought Corcoran on. He, he was hired, and they met. She told Trump, if there are any more classified documents, failing to return all of them moving forward will be, quote, a problem, <laughs> especially because the subpoena requires a signed certification swearing full compliance. Quote, once this thing is signed, she said, if anything else is located, it's going to be a crime. That is what Little said to Trump, and that is what she testified she told Trump to Jack Smith's team. The sources said that when investigators asked Little if those messages landed, she said, absolutely. Trump said something to the effect of, okay, I get it. <laughs> okay, and now, I get it. Okay, I get Stop. it. Stop. You're depressing me. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me my ketchup. Don't you have any better news? Come on. Yeah, Walt Nada comes in with a tray of assorted ketchups for him to throw. <laughs> um, yeah, both Little and Corcoran spoke with investigators about certain conversations with Trump only after, like I said, federal judge ruled in March that the attorney-client privilege was broken by the crime fraud, pierced by the crime fraud exception. Uh, and we reported that on this show back in March, if you want to go back and listen. So... Yep. That is our, oh, we got through it all. If it weren't for those late filings on Friday, it would have been a more reasonable length of show. But uh, Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those. But that's all right. We got, we got it all covered. It's all in there now at a, a whopping hour plus. But uh, a little bit of time, just a few, a minute or two left for listener questions. You ready? Yeah, I am. Let's do it. All right. Lots of interest this week on the listener questions about the decision around televising the trial. And as you might expect, people are a little frustrated that looks so far, it looks like it's not going to be televised. Um, Got some suggestions. John from Washington, uh, citing Bush v. Gore, asked if they would consider making just the audio available. And then I got a more creative one from I'll refer to him or her as Fanu Lanu because that's the name we used to use for like unknown uh, subjects of cases. <laughs> First name unknown, last name unknown, Fanu Lanu. Uh, Fanu Lanu asks if a transcript could be used to stage a reenactment of the trial. I mean, that has just such uh, operatic quality to it. I kind of like it. I kind of want to do a musical. Yeah, right? It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, I think the possibilities are endless. But bottom line is, I think this is a good question. Um, the audio thing is interesting because you don't have to go all the way back to Bush v. Gore. Simply COVID, right? COVID is what cracked the code on getting the U.S. Supreme Court uh, arguments um, released to the public in audio form because they couldn't have, uh, obviously, people come in and watch them anymore. So I feel like there's a possibility there of doing something with the audio. And then the on the other one, I don't know about a, a it would be pretty hard to stage a, a full reenactment, but um, transcripts are typically available. The challenge there is the court, uh, especially, you know, like a long trial, it's tough to marshal the resources to get the transcripts out very quickly. But you can almost imagine a situation in which um, media outlets could augment court resources and get like immediate transcripts 
um, and then have those transcripts available like on a daily basis, you know, within a certain number of hours after the testimony is finished for the day. So I do think, who knows what they'll do, but I, I think there are uh, opportunities to be more revealing here that don't go all the way to turning it into a uh, crazy televised circus. Yeah, and I liked um, NBC Universal's uh, part, you know, part of the press coalition's uh, idea, like maybe a compromise, let us record it, but not broadcast it until after it's over. Yeah. So we can have it for posterity. Yeah, I think they got to be creative about it. I think the court could strike some sort of a bargain on this stuff if they're inclined to. I think it'd be a good idea, but we'll have to wait and see how that resolves. I like this next question from Zach. Yeah, Zach um, is a very interesting spelling of his name, which I will not repeat. But okay, Zach comes in with, Greetings and salutations, esteemed hosts. I am placing my inquiry at your digital feet in the hopes that in your magnanimity and benevolence, you can bring elucidation to my ponderings. Zach's got a lot of, um, a lot of letters in all those words, and so I felt like we needed to read his question. So his question is, assuming this is enough of grandiloquent flattery, my question is, where does Jack Smith go once these trials are complete? He's going to have arguably the most recognized face in the profession and either a paradigm-shifting victory or defeat that will define his career. Can he go back to The Hague? Will it even be possible for him to continue to practice law? What options are available for a notably private attorney after commanding global attention in such a dramatic matter? I think it's a great question. It's not one we've talked about at all. Uh, nobody knows the answer to it, so we can't be wrong, Allison, which is always one of my favorites. <laughs> I feel like his his opportunities in the legal profession will be limitless, no matter how this thing turns out. There's not a big you know, successful law firm on the planet that would turn down his interest in becoming that was a top-rated partner. I yeah. was like, Skadden Arps? I mean, he could... <laughs> Name it. He can go Name anywhere it. he wants. You know, and he it could doesn't... go back to The Hague. He could go back to The Pen. He could... Yeah. Or, he, you know, maybe he just puts out a shingle and gives violin lessons, shaves <laughs> his beard, gets some plastic surgery, tries to go underground. You know, I don't... I, he, it's the, the, the... But his... The possibilities are really endless here. Yeah. And, and, you know, even if he quote unquote loses, like, let's say, I mean, I hate to even game through this, but let's say Trump wins and closes the cases and they never go to trial or whatever, you know, wins the election and, and foils it in one way or another. I think Jack Smith has acquitted himself so well in this case so mm -hmm. far in the decisions that he's made and the way he's chosen to try, uh, to indict these cases and the language and the detail that he used in the indictments and the way that he's pursued the investigation and, and you know, uh, right now is like in hand-to-hand -hand combat in terms of pretrial motions in both cases and they seem to be still uh, doing well. He's proven his mettle as a top-flight litigator. He could make ridiculous amounts of money uh, working for a private firm. That would be my odds-on guess as to what he'll do for at least a little while. Yeah, I hope he and writes a book, though. I want to. That's why I, I, I would like a book and then an interview. Yeah. What I've noticed about myself, at least, is that I fully trust him. He's conducted himself in such a manner that I trust his process, his thought process. And what he's doing. So, like, for example, when everyone's like, why haven't any members of Congress been indicted? Um, the, the, he, as he said in August, the investigation is ongoing. Yep. And we know he is not afraid to indict members of Congress. He's done it. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. he's done it tons in the past, working for Penn. And he's indicted them 
and he's both dismissed cases without indicting them. So he has a track record of being right down the middle, calling the cases based on their merit, despite, you know, even having to go through the the pain of dismissing an ongoing case because you just feel like there's enough there. So, yeah, so I totally agree. So if he doesn't indict the members of Congress, or if he does, I, I have faith that whatever he decides will be the right decision in those moments. Right. I really do. Yeah, totally agree. I think the guy's a badass. He's done a, an amazing job with this investigation in these cases so far. Who knows where it lands, but um, you, I think he has earned our trust and faith in, the, in his decision-making, at least thus far. So, and we'll get a good. report. We will get a report. We will. Oh man, that'll be. <laughs> we'll be parsing that thing down to the every dot, dash, and period for God knows how long. Yep, for real. All right. Thank you all for these questions. This is incredible. There's going to be a link in the show notes if you would like to submit a question. We always love your questions. Please send them to us. Again, if you want to become a patron, you can do that at patreon.com slash Mueller. She wrote, I'm looking forward to that meetup in April. Andy, you'll be there. Pete will be there. Um, Dana will be there and we'll send out information to patrons um, because, you know, we want to give you a little uh, little party. We want to throw you a party. For <laughs> sure. Looking forward to it. It's all, all good for, to see the Patreon cr- crowd. Yeah. And thanks for all that you do. Um, we had a we had a great one in D.C. Uh, a little bit ago and it but we could only fit like 50 people in there. But this one's going to be much bigger. So I'm looking forward nice. to it. Excellent. All right. That is the show. Any final thoughts before we get out of here? What could possibly come this week? My God, we are, we are on an arc here of getting longer and longer each week, and we're not going to go into a period of less information anytime soon. So stay tuned, everyone. Yeah, I think we'll get the denials on the rest of those motions to dismiss um, probably maybe this week or in the next week or two. Um, but we'll report it all here on the Jack Podcast. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat 
with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.